It is 5.14 a.m. on Saturday, May 6th, 2023. This is the earliest non-plane ride-related outing I've ever been on in my life. And I'm here for it. I'm on the corner of Rentar and Metropolitan Avenue outside of the M-Train subway stop. Outside of a cemetery, Fred Trump is buried across the street from where I am. So it's already starting on the right foot. Okay, Christine has just picked me up. I'm getting in the car. Are you recording your own murder in case you got murdered? I'm documenting this experience. Like, we're landing on the moon for the first time. Christine has begun playing God Save the Queen in the car as we drive through Middle Village. Deserted. A deserved location for the coronation of King Charles. Third. Okay, we will be back when Brian Tuft arrives. Oh, Brian Tuft isn't arriving. So important update, it is 6.04 p.m. P.m., Jesus, a.m. <laughs> I'm holding my first cold brew. Brian Tuft has to work today, so he's not able to make this special Limbaugh broadcast. But Christine is here. Christine, thoughts as we see King Charles ascend to the throne? Is that the throne? That's the throne. That's the throne. Okay. Um, How are we feeling so far? Feeling pretty good. Uh, love the cape. He's got like a red velvet, uh, white ermine. Camilla has this like almost wedding dress looking thing on. She looks good. She does look good. The, I, I can't wait to find out more about the necklace she's wearing. Um, William and Kate look like they walked out of a painting. They look incredible. All the kids are there. It's making me feel patriotic for a country I'm not even from. So, five stars so far. There's also a very regal-looking woman dressed in blue holding just a gigantic sword, like, ready to go. And we both want to have sex with her. (laughs) Okay, we'll be back. (laughs) Fools rushing, it's the Limbaugh Podcast Show With Brian Christine Clay, you know Drop on by. Oh, who they choose? The freedom metaphor, a presidential metaphor, the Limbaugh show. So, yeah, um, should I try to fool people into thinking that I'm Christine? I mean, you could try. <laughs> it's on the show notes. If listeners can see the show notes, it would see that Christine was handling the intro today, and uh, she's not here. I mean, what's so great is if anyone who's listening to this actually knows Christine in real life, as we do, Christine's number one pet peeve is people being late to stuff, and uh, Christine's family motto is, if you're not early, you're late. Mm-hmm. And the idea that Christine is now 15 minutes 
past the like the start of the record time. Never mind, like we usually show up and like you know bullshit in the green room for you know, and we like, did somewhere between one to ten minutes. Yeah. And... I just talked about the film Ghosted, <laughs> and we we said everything we could say about it, and now you know we have nothing left to say. Um, so the idea that Christine is at this point minimum fifteen minutes. I would say maybe up to 25 minutes late mm. is just, it couldn't have happened to a better person. Yeah. So uh, for listeners at home, if you haven't been able to do it yet, my name is Clay Russell. And I'm Christine Seward. <laughs> <laughs> She's late. I'm Brian Tuck. I was on time. There we go. We were both on time. Christine is not. But you know what? We're still recording. That's how it's going to work. This is a Limbaugh. It's a show about the Presidential Medal of Freedom, those who've received it, who should receive it, and a lot who shouldn't. Oh, look at this. Christine just joined us as soon as we stopped talking about the coronation. It's like she sensed that we were done speaking about the coronation, and then she hopped on. Hi. Hi, how are you? Hi. I famously don't have any opinions on the royal family. Of course not. We do. We did say that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's bring it back to the real world. I'm talking about America. Since we've last recorded the show, Joe Biden made it official. He is seeking re-election. If he does win a second term, will be 86 years old. So am I hallucinating or was it stated or just implied that he was going to be a one-term president? Uh, it was implied, Right. Because he said he was going to be a transitional candidate, which most people, and I think rightly assumed, that that meant that he was there to get Donald Trump out of office. And then he was going to be there, do his thing, and then pass it on, transition it, if you will, to a new generation. Yeah, like after he like burned some sage, cleansed the White House of its demons, he was going to let someone else step well, I mean, yeah, he had to spend all that time with the maintenance crew trying to get Kellyanne Conway out from underneath the floorboards <laughs> of the East Wing. They had to chase her out with a broom. Yeah. Do you think that this was purely a ego taking over saying I can do a second term? Or do you think that he saw Donald Trump as the likely nominee and said, OK, I've got to do this again? So, no, I think maybe... Um, Feel free to pelt me with garbage when you see me on the street, listeners. But when I watched that campaign announcement video, I really felt that to him it sounded like it was a mission. Like it sounds like he he doesn't feel that the job is done. And he made that case to me. And I didn't really need the case to be made because I don't think that there's anyone else who can beat Donald Trump in the Democratic coalition right now. I just, I don't see, uh, you know, a president Pete Buttigieg. I almost called him president mayor Pete, um, <laughs> just to give you an idea, like how little I can see him as president. And I mean, I like him and I hope he does great things. And I hope, you know, that just being in the Biden administration as the head of transportation is the first step of many that he's going to take. But like, I just, I don't, there's only one person who I think could do it. And that's Gretchen Whitmer. And I think after she, had such a success in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that she knows that she's destined for greatness and she wasn't going to step on any toes here. Yeah. I think those are all valid points. And I think that half of America is still crazy enough to back Donald Trump. And if he did back out, he already regrets it the first time, not running in 2016. So 
I, I, I mean, can see that. I, I, the age thing is unavoidable, and who knows what shape he is going to be in in the next 18 months. Uh, that kind of has me do a segue to the next portion of this, which is the top priority or one of the top priorities of this campaign is they have to get Kamala Harris more involved because uh, I don't know if it's necessarily her fault or the administration's fault, but I felt like she was pretty quickly put on the back burner. And in a normal administration, that would be acceptable. But if you are going to tout yourself as the transitional candidate, you really do have to get her more involved. And lastly, Donald Trump is a shrewd motherfucker, and I think that he's looking at Nikki Haley and saying, let's completely get her on board. Uh, I think that Nikki Haley is a formidable campaigner, and that if they can show that another candidate also has female representation, that you could have a couple of undecided voters who don't necessarily look at the news every day that would uh, side with, with her as opposed to Kamala Harris. I just want to say that to me, Kamala Harris does not have an image problem because I love that every so often she just posts a video of her laughing and just having fun and being a silly goose. (laughs) And I find that to be highly relatable because I'm always laughing and I'm always being a silly goose. She is popular with the silly goose contingent. Yeah, Brian, everything okay? You all right, buddy? (laughs) We did it, Joe. We're silly goose. Geese. Silly geese. Geese. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i couldn't remember if uh it was like fish where it was just like that's the plural but no it's definitely geese <laughs> or silly goose gooses geeses goslings it's a gander of silly geese <laughs> harris 24 join the gander <laughs> oh y'all I don't know, (laughs) y'all. But yeah, it's obviously the very early stages of the campaign, but I do think that the Biden administration has to do a better job bringing Mayor Pete into the conversation and bringing Kamala into the conversation. I mean, they have to know that's their biggest liability right now, is people being like, he's a million years old, like we're so sick of these same couple old guys running for office, Mm -hmm. like... There's no way they're not aware that that's the problem. It's that and the Diane Feinstein thing isn't helping either with you never want to have the image of a generation that's just kind of clinging to power and in that way actually disrupt disrupting the agenda of the Democratic Party and getting judges in office and things like that. I do think that the big test of this campaign, because I feel like he has already shown that he is a capable leader and is able to accomplish things, is that he is still a capable leader and is still worthy of the office. It's something where the opportunity is there. I mean, let's not forget when he campaigned last time, he wasn't able to hold rallies. He wasn't able to speak to people. And I think that that's always where his power is and continues to lie. I mean, I am like I, terrified that like, you know, he's going to have like a stroke on October 30th, like a repeat of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, situation where it's going to be smooth sailing until the very end. Because, you know, the universe loves to uh, throw, the, throw the Democrats a curveball. A nice October surprise. Mm -hmm. I'm reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. (laughs) Thanks very much, Jim Comey. (laughs) I won't put anything above the Democratic Party at this point, but I do hope that they have a very well-planned contingency plan in place in case Biden's health takes a dip 
and they can kind of lock in uh, if it's Kamala, yes, but, you know, have a vice president nominee in place that is kind of on standby, have a plan, have everything ready to go where they can easily jump into place if they need to scramble to do things. Because, again, it's I don't think that we're being overreactionary saying that an 86 year old's health can be a little bit dicey, especially at any point in the next 18 months. Mm hmm. So there is one character in this story that we have not really talked about, and that is Nikki Haley. And I want to go on the record as an individual. I'm not speaking for the whole podcast. And I want to say, fuck Nikki Haley. A few days ago, she tweeted that today was a momentous day for womankind in reference to the firing of Don Lemon. And which I think is like something that we can all say, like Don Lemon did say some sexist things, and that's horrible. But because she's incapable of being a decent human being she immediately followed it up with now we just need to keep men out of women's sports so nikki haley wow you're not for me i don't wish you well whatever um which brings us to the in that little tweet is the news that there was a major shakeup in cable news uh since our last episode and that is the firing just serendipitously on the same day of same Don Lemon hour. and Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's truly like Michael Jackson and Farrah Fawcett dying on the same day. <laughs> like you would like CNN was like braced all day. Like, Oh God, we're going to have to go live with the lemon news. And then they like check Twitter and we're like, no one noticed. <laughs> <laughs> what else is going on? I will say credit to Don Lemon because he did have the messiest reaction by being like, I've worked there for 17 years. They couldn't even give me a phone call. And then CNN had to release a second statement. and was like, actually, you were invited to a meeting with management and you didn't show up and decided to release this statement instead, which is what I was expecting from Tucker Carlson. But unfortunately, we've just gotten a um, weird video where I almost feel like he may be running for president. God help us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I do you think that the reason why he was let go has not as much to do with the defamation settlement as we think? I bet that there's some stuff that's going to come out that is pretty dark shit that we're about ready to see where it's like, oh, this is a no brainer why they let him go because he's a terrible human being. Right. And it scares me to consider what that might be. Yeah. There was apparently like a really bad culture of like bullying and sexism, racism, anti-Semitic behavior, making fun of people who have uh, special needs, uh, just like on his production staff. uh, And some woman uh, filed a federal suit about uh, having to work in those conditions. And then it just came out that apparently um, some more text messages were found like the day of the lawsuit and they were going to be introduced. And apparently they were the worst text messages that have ever been sent. And I'm just like the... Just like Republican machine has no ability to stop leaks. And I'm just like, why don't I have these text messages? I want to go to a special DNC fundraiser where local New York character directors read the text messages and act them out. (laughs) Getting uh, just because it has been buried a little bit with everything that's come out this week is the Fox News settlement of the defamation lawsuit with Dominion's voting system and something that. I uh, did not know about until after the settlement was announced is that Dominion is essentially run by a private equity company. And I wish I would have known that sooner. So I 
would have known that they would have definitely settled. The purpose of a private equity company isn't necessarily to get an apology if they've been defamed, but to make the most amount of money possible. And if I would have known that, I would have assumed that they were going to settle before they went to trial. So it was surprising when it was announced, but when I found out who was actually owning and operating Dominion, it wasn't necessarily a surprise after that. Mm-hmm. I'm just disappointed. I was really looking forward to the trial. I've had a hole in my heart since the Gwyneth uh, ski trial ended, and I was really looking forward to just watching Tucker Carlson and Judge Janine Pirro and all these people just get like completely tallywhacked on the stand. So pouring one out for that. What could have been? Yeah. Could have been. <laughs> I guess I should research who owns Smartmatic because maybe they uh, have enough of a vengeance side to them. We're like, I don't care how much money. I hope it's the us. most petty person in the world. Yeah. And I hope that that trial goes on. It's like the OJ trial. <laughs> Founder and CEO of Smartmatic, Don <laughs> Lemon. What? I want to see Tucker Carlson in a white Bronco. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Anything else to go over? The 2004 Charlie Kaufman film, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, holds up almost 20 years later. I just want everyone to know that. Michelle Gondry, uh... Oh, as a director, right? Yeah. He's had a bit of a disappointing career since that film, but Agreed. all you need is to make one masterpiece, and he got his. It's, it's very good. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of masterpieces, I'll be leading us through a metal profile for James Jimmy Stewart. Also, follow us on Twitter if Twitter's still around at Limbaugh Podcast. We have Mastodune 2, which I feel like has kind of fell by the wayside, but I have been reading about Jack Dorsey's new company. I think they're called Blue Sky, so we'll see what happens with that. Either way, in the meantime... They're calling their posting skeets. Oh, God. <laughs> Just, I don't think I can get on board with that. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. For anyone still left on Twitter, at Limbaugh Podcast. We'll be... Like, oh, yeah, we're skeeting. Like, okay. <laughs> Just <not> good. <laughs> So we are in a very dangerous time in our presidential timeline here at the Limbaugh. Um, not for Christine and Clay, because they are white, cisgendered, heterosexual people. But if I were alive during the Reagan administration, which, I mean, I guess legally I was for a couple of months, I would probably have full-blown AIDS. Ronald Reagan is, like, my pick for, you know, that jo- that kind of dinner party conversation where it's like, if you could go back and kill one person in history, who would it be? Mine is Ronald Reagan. Like, that guy who was trying to impress Jodie Foster, I don't know if Jodie Foster was impressed, but I was. <laughs> <laughs> so when it came time to kind of dig into the Ronald Reagan presidential medal of freedom picks i was kind of surprised because he was like the first celebrity president uh he has his own ties to hollywood i was expecting it to be a lot of heavy hitters 
And there's definitely a few in there, but there's also a very impressive amount of writers and journalists and uh, political activists uh, that I did not see coming, uh, probably because, you know, we live in a hellscape where uh, Donald Trump just gave it to the worst people. But Nestled in there was somebody who I kind of think has an interesting parallel to The Gipper, and that is James Jimmy Stewart, an actor who was born on May 20th, 1908 in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Wait, what? Um, hmm? Pennsylvania has a town called Indiana? Allegedly, yes. I've already learned so much, and you're like 90 seconds into your profile. This is incredible. The mass shooting of the day in Texas was in Cleveland, Texas. <sighs> what a wacky country. Yeah. Jimmy was the oldest child and only son to his parents, Elizabeth and Alexander Stewart. The Stewarts, I found, uh, were residents of Pennsylvania for multiple generations. Uh, the family founded the J.M. Stewart and Company Hardware Store, which Jimmy's father had hoped he would take over after graduating from Princeton, as was family tradition, which I just love that that's the tradition. You go to Princeton and then you, you manage the hardware store. At some point during his childhood, a customer at the hardware store was unable to pay his bills and bartered with Jimmy's father uh, using an accordion as payment for his bill. This excited young Jimmy, who had a local barber teach him how to play the accordion, and playing the accordion was the first thing to pull this painfully shy child from his usual hobbies of model airplanes, drawing, and chemistry. He was also obsessed with aviation, as this is about the time that Charles Lindbergh is about to fly, you know, wherever he went where he lost his baby. I I, I don't know where he went. <laughs> A transatlantic flight. You're okay. telling me this flight is trans? Yes, I know. <laughs> you didn't... Brian, I'm joking. <laughs> you've been to the mall that stands on the airfield from which he took off. It's a great mall. Simon great Malls mall. are the best malls, and that's on period. Hold on. What mall? I don't know about this. Where, where is this mall? Roosevelt Field. Roosevelt Field. They built a mall. They're like, what should we do with this giant flat area of land that has historical value? Let's build a mall. There's still uh, aviation fields over there, though, because if you're, if you, when you're going to the parking lot, you can usually see a plane overhead. I didn't know that. So it's fine. Uh, so Stewart enrolls at Princeton in 1928. He graduates in four years, model student, turns down a scholarship for graduate studies in architecture that he was awarded for his thesis on airport terminal design. Oh my um, God. And instead chooses to join the university players, an intercollegiate summer stock company performing on Cape Cod. He gets the bug uh, performing on Cape Cod and then decides to move to New York. He stars in a few failed plays on Broadway uh, at some point ends up getting a role in his first film ever uh, that was shot in Brooklyn and at the same time gets a role as a lead in a film uh, that wasn't expected to do well called Yellow Jack, which is a story of a soldier who becomes the subject of a yellow fever experiment. The reviews are wonderful, but MGM thinks, and this is a direct quote, it's so brutal, thinks he is a lanky young bumpkin with a hesitant manner of speech. I mean, they're not wrong. They're not, not wrong, no. <laughs> and I assume that young Jimmy Stewart was also just a gangly child. <laughs> so they won't make. They won't even let him uh, have a run as a leading man. But like I said, the reviews for this film, Yellow Jack, are really wonderful. And this uh, kind of helps him float through the next, like, eight years where he makes 
a ton of unsuccessful and unnoteworthy films that I will skip over, only pausing to make note that in 1938, he has a bit part in a film called The Gorgeous Hussy, which I don't know. I think I'm going to have to seek this one out. Yeah. We're going to have to start like a little side like movie club for obscure movies that come <laughs> up on the podcast. With great names, yeah. <laughs> In 1938, he gets his big break, starring in the 1938 Best Picture Oscar winner, Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You. Uh, Like so many stars, he follows the success with a massive flop in a melodrama called Made for Each Other. But the man rebounds by releasing Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, The very same year, an iconic film that secures Stewart his first Oscar nomination. Uh, the film's Destry Rides Again, Shop Around the Corner, and The Mortal Storm follow. In 1940, Stewart wins his first and only competitive Oscar for A Philadelphia Story, which he co-stars with Catherine Hepburn. Uh, I thought it was very sweet. He gifts the Oscar to his father, who puts it on display in his shop with the family's military trophies from World War I. Aww. Stewart is kind of riding high. He has the Oscar. He makes a couple of more films. And then his plans, just like everyone else's, are turned upside down by World War II breaking out. Stewart is, according to my source, uh, which was Wikipedia, and then I followed it to the article, he is the first major star to enlist in the services, as his family has a history of military service. And during the war, He does not make a single film, despite being under contract at MGM, only making appearances for public engagements uh, for the Air Force. At this point uh, during the war, he's actually concerned that his star status is going to cause him to be sidelined. So he uh, essentially fights with uh, higher-ups to fly, and he does. He takes on a larger role, uh, eventually becoming a colonel in the Air Force, and then actually presides over a court-martial case for a pilot and navigator who mistakenly bombed Zurich, Switzerland during World War II. It's like his military career is a reverse John Wayne. Instead of not wanting to <laughs> serve, he wanted to serve more. So badly. Yeah, like he was yeah. like, like, I can just imagine him like, you know, getting like all worked up about it. Yeah. Obviously, you know, for those of you who skipped 11th grade history and never had the History Channel, uh, the Allies win the war. He comes home a war hero. And decides that he's going to go back to Hollywood. First movie out of the gate, It's a Wonderful Life. Just bam. (gasps) Just literally post-war America, we're nostalgic. Mm -hmm. He he just blows it out of the water. Nominated, he's nominated for another Oscar, his third. And then the movie is not a success. It actually is like The Wizard of Oz, where it, uh, you know, is like a moderate success, is nominated for a few Oscars. Uh, I don't believe wins any. And then becomes a cultural touchstone uh, due to its multiple re-airings on television and becoming part of like the American Christmas canon. Later on, uh, starting in 1948, uh, Jimmy uh, begins working with a little director named Alfred Hitchcock and then stars in, uh, obviously, the aforementioned Rope, uh, Rear Window, and then as well as Vertigo. One of the other films uh, that he makes uh, as he's moving into the kind of later portion of his career is The Spirit of St. Louis uh, with Billy Wilder, where he gets to star as his childhood hero, Charles Lindbergh. 
And then at some point he, you know, starts to kind of dry up. Uh, he starts making a lot of Westerns. He decides that he's going to pivot to television. Uh, he stars in an NBC sitcom called The Jimmy Stewart Show, where he plays a small town college professor whose adult son moves home with his family. The show was not very popular, which was great news for Jimmy Stewart, because he apparently hated the schedule demands of working on a weekly television series. In the 1980s... I mean, I know that I fought in World War II, but a nine-to-five job? No, thank you. <laughs> he he said that's not for me. By the way, folks, Brian did not want to have a supplemental showdown, so Christine and I could not have a competition on our Jimmy Stewart impression, but I worked it in still. And for that, we're so thankful. You're welcome. <laughs> that's goofy. Um <laughs> So uh, then he starts pivoting to supporting roles. He uh, has a very um, memorable supporting role in the disaster film Airport 77 with Jack Lemmon. Uh, He's in the remake of The Big Sleep. And then he just kind of pivots to being a celebrity. You know, Uh, he starts appearing on The Johnny Carson Show. He uh, begins sharing uh, poetry that he's written, uh, which actually gets turned into a book that is published in 1989. And then in 1985, kind of uh, flanked by the re-release and the renewed recognition from those re-releases of Rear Window and Vertigo, he's awarded the Honorary Academy Award in 1985, which is why I uh, kind of said that it was his only competitive Oscar. He does have two. And then that same year, he's actually awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Ronald Reagan. It's interesting, though, because his Wikipedia notes that Stewart, despite him not acting anymore, remained in the public eye due to his frequent visits to the White House during the Reagan administration. And this made me kind of think about the fact that Ronald Reagan, as I had said at the beginning of my profile, was a Hollywood guy. Uh, He was the president before he was the president of the United States of the Screen Actors Guild. And he kind of has the opposite career of Jimmy Stewart, where he's just starting to make headway in the early 1940s in Hollywood before the war breaks out. He also serves in the war and is never able to find roles or stardom again after the war. And instead of making an iconic film like It's a Wonderful Life, he decides to kind of, you know, become the president of the SAG. And he... I kind of got to thinking about the idea that, to me, just like Donald Trump always wanted to be a celebrity and then was never embraced by Hollywood or by New York society, so he decided to run for president, I kind of had this idea, what would have happened, do you think, if they come home from war and Jimmy Stewart is the one who becomes the SAG president and Ronald Reagan stars in It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, like multiverse. Like there's a timeline <laughs> in which the ro- they switch. Like, do you think we see President Jimmy Stewart? He sounds squeaky clean. And he sounds like, I know we're going to get into the meta discussion very shortly of like, he's clearly not a Limbaugh. And based on hmm. what you're saying, it sounds like this is the kind of person we would love more public figures to be, which is like hardworking, humble, and like, tons of integrity and you know when his country needed him he like stepped up to the plate and was like wait this plate isn't high enough i want to be over there where it's even more dangerous and um sounds like that could have been a i think the timeline in which 
Reagan and Jimmy Stewart swap places is probably a better timeline than this one. <laughs> I'm also curious about what shaped Reagan's politics. Was it him being in Hollywood and being an actor, or was there some extraneous influence that, that caused him to have the beliefs that he had? It's curious because I did do a little bit of reading about that, and Reagan famously uh, started as a Democrat and actually mentioned that his biggest political hero was FDR, which is crazy because the first thing he did as president of the United States in 1981 was dismantle the union for the air traffic controllers, which is not something that Franklin Delano Roosevelt would have done, Ronald. He also got rid Definitely of a lot not. of the New Deal initiatives as well. I was going to say, I feel like... <laughs> It's not just the AIDS stuff, guys. He's bad. <laughs> I mean, the AIDS stuff I can forgive, but infrastructure? That, I draw the line. Wasn't yeah. it also that Nixon supposedly was in favor of universal health care, but then Reagan got a hold of it and was like, absolutely not. We want to make this as profitable as possible and business should come over people's health decisions. I mean, that sounds like it's possible, given what I found out about the Gipper. It's, this is also a time when Republicans were still deciding on how they would deal with Roe versus Wade. There was a time when mm. they accepted it as precedent, the Roe versus Wade decision, but then turned it into a bit of an identity politics thing and as we graphically know now the rest is history with that right what did you find out anything about jimmy stewart's like belief system i assume he was christian uh so he was yes he was a uh, devout uh, devoutly religious uh he was a lifelong conservative uh, republican but that meant something very different in the 1940s and 50s than it does now. Just uh, now that we've gotten to the fact that he received the medal, in 1994, I believe it is, he uh, starts an initiative to essentially defend the arts against um, Ted Turner, uh, who has decided that technology needs to be used to colorize films. And Jimmy Stewart is very upset about the idea that they're going to essentially kind of destroy and cheapen the arts. And I was just like, there's no conservative Republican who's concerned about the arts. Uh, not today. <laughs> yeah. I also see that he publicly uh, spoke out in support of the Gun Control Act of 1968, which, again, is not something that you would hear a Republican doing today. I guess my, my footnotes post this kind of career resurgence, uh, the medal, the second Oscar, is his last film role. Any guesses? 1991's Feifel Goes West. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I was like, I know he made it to the 90s. I couldn't. Uh, I, if I wife, had given you 100 guesses, I would not have picked that. So well done. His wife, unfortunately, passes away of lung cancer in 1994. There's conflicting reports. Uh, some people who knew him personally said that this is not the case, but it is widely believed that he became very depressed. I want to believe Jack Lemon when he says that, you know, Jimmy was not depressed and that things were well. He just needed time to rest. But in 1996, he declines to get his pacemaker battery replaced. This leads to an irregular heartbeat, uh, some uh, medical scares throughout 1997. And he does end up passing away at the end of 1997 at Wait, 89 years old. Isn't that basically like a slow suicide to not get your pacemaker repaired? Um, yeah, and a successful yeah. one at this, I would say. It says that he you died know, of a heart attack, so it wasn't necessarily a peaceful death, too. When Jimmy sets his mind to something. Yeah. 
Jimmy was like, my wife died and I want to be with her. Once that five goes west, check cashes. I'm I'm too much I'm too much of a uh, a good Christian to kill myself, but I will not take any steps to not kill myself. Right. I was excited to uh, highlight him, uh, not just because of the Reagan connection, where it's just like, you know, these all-American boys working in Hollywood, they go to serve their country and they come back and they do uh, two very different timelines. But uh, he's also like, he was, he, well, he was my mother's favorite uh, actor. Um, and he's just one of those people who, whenever I see him in something, I'm always excited. Which leads me to my next question, which... Who would this person be today? I've been thinking about that. I um, think it's I think it's the obvious answer, and I think it's the right answer. Hanks. Tom, I was just gonna say Tom Hanks. It's it's <gasps> sometimes the most obvious answer is the right answer, and it's it's Hanks. Crazier, yeah. And just to like flesh it out a little, I think the a Hollywood career that was a little slow to take off. He had a few thankless roles early on, showed his chops, and people were like. Yeah, this Tom Hanks is pretty charming, but it wasn't until he started making some real, like sinking his teeth into some real roles that he became a movie star. And although, to my knowledge, Tom Hanks hasn't served in the military, he was so, like, moved by, I assume, like, research as well as just participating in the filming of Saving Private Ryan that he, that was when he found out that there was no existing World War II Veterans Memorial on a federal level. And he, like, campaigned and raised money. It wasn't him alone, but he obviously put a huge... That's a huge star to put his weight behind that campaign. Because I think I was living in D.C. when it opened. And it's and it's actually really moving. I went with some friends who had World War II veterans and their family. And you can go, like, state by state. There's, like, different pillars for the states. And you can, like, look up your family. Like, it's a really nice, really well-done memorial. And, again, I know it wasn't purely Tom Hanks is doing, but it was something that, so, you know, even if he didn't serve in the military, still found a way to like kind of honor people who have, Mm -hmm. and his, you know, his former colleague in Forrest Gump had a similar experience playing a disabled veteran, Gary Sinise, who to this day, like raises money for veterans. So a couple of menches. Yeah. Speaking of Forrest Gump, Ronald Reagan killed Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. But an interesting connection between Tom Hanks and Jimmy Stewart is one of the movies that I mentioned in his lead up to his competitive Oscar win is a movie called Shop Around the Corner, which is the inspiration for Tom Hanks' greatest film role, You've Got Mail. That is so they essentially great. Come on. What? what Saving Private Ryan? Yes. Please. I, all those men are working that hard to save Matt Damon. Get out of here. <laughs> they could have done something better. He was an English <laughs> literature teacher. Okay. He didn't ask to be put in that position. But then once he was there, he rose to the occasion, much like Jimmy Stewart. And you want to talk about problematic Oscar wins? He plays a gay guy with AIDS and he plays okay. somebody with special needs. Okay. Not a great track record, Tommy. You've got mail, a flawless film. Brian's got a point. To be there. fair, he was in his own, his own wheelhouse in that regard. I think that the thing that audiences really connect with Hanks, and it's not necessarily his awards wins, but in general, they connect his persona with a pureness and an all-American stand-up-for-the-little-guy part of things. He definitely has his character actor moments, but I'd say that Mm -hmm. 90% of his film roles are him kind of playing that persona and playing himself. 
with Philadelphia and, and Forrest Gump and all of those films, yes, he uh, won accolades for those, but those aren't necessarily the films that we remember him for, really. We remember him more for his persona, and that's what I think that Jimmy Stewart had as well, is that yeah. that purity, that not necessarily machismo, I'm a tough action star who can never lose, but someone who's a bit more vulnerable, but also stands up for the right thing. Yeah. In Rear Window, there is a point where he is in danger. And it's not like, you know, when you watch a movie and you're supposed to believe that, like, Vin Diesel is in danger. And it's like, there's no way that this man is really scared. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like I would believe that, I, I do believe watching that movie that Jimmy Stewart is scared and is in danger. And I would believe if Tom Hanks, not that I think anyone should remake that movie, it's perfect. But if Tom Hanks starred in a similar movie or a remake of that movie, I would also believe that Tom Hanks is in danger. Yeah. There is a an everyman quality uh, to them both. If the result of being in danger meant that Grace Kelly would come to save me, I'd do it. <laughs> the Same. end of that movie where she puts down the book when she notices that he's fallen asleep and picks up the Harper's Bazaar, no moment in cinema <laughs> has spoken to me more than that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that is the story of a little man named Jimmy Stewart. It's also very interesting because in all of the, like, I watched uh, the medal ceremony. I uh, kind of watched some videos about him. Everyone calls him James. And I'm like, no, you know what? I feel close enough to him. That's part of the magic of what made him a movie star. But I'm going to call him Jimmy. Mm. That's like the inverse of finding out that all of Robert De Niro's friends call him Bob or Bobby. And I'm like, uh-uh, no. <laughs> nope. It's neither Bob nor Bobby. That's I reject that information. It's been a while since we've done a profile where someone whose public persona matched who they were in real life. And I feel like we got that with Jimmy Stewart. I know. It's almost a little anticlimactic, right? <laughs> But that's that's good though. It's someone like, who wasn't he like kind of shitty to a waiter like at least one time. He was banned from Balthazar famously. <laughs> oh yes, um, yes, yes. And it's just he, it was before Twitter, so nobody knew. Like Bing Crosby, he savagely beat his wife and children. I was a raging alcoholic. He just didn't have the algorithm didn't uh, exist. But God, could he sing White Christmas? Yeah, in a car. <laughs> you guys want to hear something? Do you want to hear something funny? Uh, we can cut this. Adele liked him. <laughs> I actually thought I was going to call Brian out I like fact checked my ch myself while Brian was talking about his movie career because I'm like how could you leave out To Kill a Mockingbird and that was Gregory, Gregory Peck. Peck but to be <laughs> fair these were two extremely handsome brunette like mid-century white guys with a severe side part like it was I could be forgiven I uh, Jimmy Stewart would have eaten the house down as Atticus, Atticus Finch, like, I, and I, he would have been great. Yeah, and so I think my brain was just like he was obviously. That's that like role. the one that got away from for him. Do you think? Yeah, like if we had Twitter back then, it would be like ten actors who missed out on the roles of a lifetime, and Jimmy Stewart's like, I could have been Atticus Finch. <laughs> oh yuck! <laughs> <laughs> All right, and with that, uh, we'll be back in a few minutes when Christine leads us through our medals of the week. Looking yes. forward to it, Christine. <laughs> Me and Mickey will be here waiting for you. Oh boy! <laughs> I feel like I feel like when I try to take the persona of Goofy, I actually sound more like Jimmy Stewart. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> it's amazing. 
Our medals of the week. I'll go first. Mine, I'm handing out to local state representatives. <laughs> Sounds like Brian's dog agrees. <laughs> He's like, local politicians are the backbone of our democracy. <laughs> Finnegan is the representative of this uh, house. Okay. <laughs> A lot of... Uh, the hyper-politicization of our government lately uh, has shown that some pretty anti-democratic things have happened, and one of them is supermajorities suspending the political power of state representatives to prove a point. And there are two instances of that in the last month that I just wanted to spotlight. The first one being in Tennessee when three state representatives, Justin Pearson, Justin Jones, and Gloria Johnson, uh, spoke out and had a protest on gun control after one of our numerous mass shootings. And in the past, lawmakers would pass a resolution condemning their behavior. But in this instance, they actually threw them out of the House of Representatives there, effectively uh, cutting off the uh, city of Nashville's political power and ability to vote in bills, which is pretty much cut and paste, a very anti-democratic thing to do. Thankfully, they held special elections and all three are back in office. But a really concerning thing that you're seeing now with these supermajorities that happen in states across the nation now. And the second one has happened in the last a week in the state of Montana when a trans state representative, Zoe Zephyr, uh, spoke out about the severe restrictions of trans rights in the state of Montana and during a protest uh, was cited as uh, well, a couple of people yelling from the gallery was uh, told that it was a full-scale riot when people shout from the gallery and was also booted out from the House floor. A pretty incredible photo of her was published in the New York Times yesterday where even though that she was thrown out of the house, she sat in the food court section outside of the house on a bench and did her work from there. And it was a strong visual of I think it was an incredibly brave and smart thing that she did to show that she would not be thrown out of the house, that she was there to represent and speak for both her district and for trans people in the nation. And yeah, it's these type of things where it's not necessarily a senator or a national federal congressman who, uh, let's face it, based on them geographically being in Washington, D.C., isn't necessarily able to have that face to face in these local areas that aren't necessarily a big city, but these local state representatives are the ones that are directly speaking toward people and they are able to represent viewpoints, which in 2023 may not be a major thing, but that doesn't mean that they should be silenced because there is a supermajority party that rules in a state. So my medal goes toward your local state representatives. That whole thing felt like such a mess because on top of being anti-democratic, it was also a thing where all three of those representatives in the first example you gave are back in power. And the two that they actually removed now have a war chest and a national profile. Um, so it's just like, what were you thinking? Yeah. 
And it's really good to highlight that type of behavior as well, because I think that people see what a problem it is when you do vote these supermajorities in. And just because they may share your beliefs doesn't mean that they should be allowed to do anti-democratic things and to end the political power of the party who you may not be interested in. That's not democracy. That's authoritarianism is what that is. So, yeah, it's I agree. I think it's really important not only for them to spotlight how they're treated, but to also be outspoken once they are banned, because it's something that we really do need to look out for, especially with a presidential election year coming up next year. So they get my vote. Christine? Okay, well, mine's really dumb and silly after that. But you know what? That's what this podcast is all about. The highbrow, the lowbrow. Okay, so this coming Monday is the Met Gala. I think two out of three of us were well aware of that. For anyone who doesn't know, it's just a big effing party to celebrate the new season at the the Met, the New York City Institution Museum. Blake Lively. Funded by the Sackler family. Well, what isn't at this point? Yeah, no, and which is why Blake Lively, who is like a perennial star of the gala, um, including wearing one of my favorite Met Gala looks of all time last year, which was the Statue of Liberty dress. She came in and it was like this copper, shiny, very dramatic thing. And then when she got up the iconic red steps on the red carpet, the, um, the train unfurled and it was the color of the current, you know, like the patina, that like um, teal color that copper gets after it patinas and then her gloves turned inside out and then she was like green. It was super cool. Um, not her first, uh, rodeo. She's like just one of the people I think she gets to like walk last and it's always like, what's Blake Lively going to wear? So Blake Lively announced that she's not going to come to the Met Gala here and she's going to like watch it from the couch on her jammies, perhaps in a, in a feeble attempt to seem relatable. But I think more realistically, she recently had a baby and was just like not up for the, for the, you know, it's one thing to like put on a dress, but the Met Gala is probably like a full-time job leading up to it. And the reaction though online is why I have to tip my hat to her because it's like, I think it's interesting for a celebrity who's fairly young. I mean, I think she's probably in her mid-30s by now. And, like, yeah, she's been in Gossip Girl. She's been in a few, like, reasonably successful movies. But she's not actually, like, she's not really a movie star. But she, like, carved out such a niche for herself in the fashion world that, like, people are already like, oh, my God, Met Gala's going to suck this year. Met Gala's in its flop era. Like, what's the point if... Blake Lively is not going to be there. And I think it's it's always like impressive and interesting to me when anyone in the public eye manages to burrow into a into a type of fame and prominence that like never really matches their creative output. <laughs> and I think for someone like Blake Lively, it's just she is very fashionable. She's obviously like tall and blonde and beautiful. And so you put a dress on her and she's going to look amazing. But it's just like she's not that big of a star outside of fashion but the biggest one of the biggest fashion moments of the year is like oh my god what's even the point if she's not going to be there and she'll just be laughing with her you know her popcorn and her jammies on monday night so she gets my medal of the week it is crazy. I remember on gay Twitter, somebody posted a photo of Evangeline Lilly and it was like her commitment to never serving needs to be studied. <laughs> and 
the way that I feel about Blake Lively is sort of embodied in that tweet where like, yes, she had gossip girl. It was an iconic pop culture moment, but like, I don't know why, but at some point today I actually went and I looked at her IMDB and it's like green lantern, a movie where she's uh, being chased by sharks. <laughs> she's in the Woody Allen movie after all, like we already knew Woody Allen wasn't a good guy, but it had all resurfaced and really like, you know, kind of uh, permeated the, um, culture. Yeah. No, like his legacy. It's just like a thing where I'm like, how is this woman so famous? Like, I agree with you. I've seen so many tweets being like, she's not going to the Met Gala. Cancel it. And I'm just like, Oh wow. Like this is crazy that her whole brand is like, I'm beautiful. I wear clothes really, really nice. I'm friends with all the right people. And I have, you know, this, uh, kind of meme worthy relationship with my husband, uh, Ryan Reynolds. Well, hats off to you, Blake. Um, so I'm going to go last and mine also goes to an actor, but mine is somebody who actually has a memorable role. Um, <laughs> Brutal. so I'm giving my medal of the week to Brian Cox from succession. I don't, I'm going to put a spoiler alert on this, but I don't think I need to because the LA times ran an obituary in the print edition the day after the episode aired, but his character Logan, again, spoiler alert has passed away on succession. To be fair, the show is called Succession. I mean, people had to know it was coming. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but to me, I think what makes it so brilliant is at the beginning of the season, I said, I hope it's not like he dies at the end. I was like, if he's going to die, I hope it like happens. And as I was watching it, I still couldn't believe it, even though I knew that it should happen that way. And his performance on that show in that episode, uh, not so much because he's... <laughs> Uh, dead on the floor of a plane for most of it. But he stayed really still. Oh my God. I I was like, is Brian Cox really dead? <laughs> but it was uh, an incredible, he uh, gave an incredible performance uh, over the course of those four seasons. But what I was most struck by recently was I have been in a phase where I've been obsessed with fresh air um, from NPR. And I've been listening to uh, pretty much any episode I can get my hands on. And Terry Gross is a fan of Succession and actually did a like recap episode where she put together all of her favorite interview moments with the cast of Succession. And one of them is an inter uh, part of an interview with Brian Cox where he recites from memory either a sonnet or a soliloquy from Shakespeare in this booming voice that he has. And it's just an incredible, incredible soundbite. I actually was looking to see if I could figure out exactly what he quotes, uh, but it's just the pure talent. And then to think about the idea that he has played Hamlet and all of these roles on stage and people got to see them is just awe-inspiring. Mm -hmm. And it's even more awe-inspiring when you also consider that right now, on top of being on TV for Succession, Brian Cox is on TV every single day as the voice in the McDonald's commercial. <laughs> That's him talking about the quarter pounder no, with cheese not. glistening. That's him going, but up, 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 up. No, it's not. It is. It's him. That is him. And to me, anyone who can do both, who can be like this podcast and go highbrow <laughs> and lowbrow, that's a medal of the week. Brian, you have blown my mind several <laughs> times in this. Oh my brief God, week. he's right. I just looked it up. <gasps> he's not even American. Roy Kroc is spinning in his grave. Yeah. When he is screaming at Naomi Watts in the ring. 
because she's trying to investigate what happened to his daughter who's, a you know, demon. killing all these teenagers. Yeah. And he goes, my wife wasn't supposed to have children! <laughs> like, it's just like a thing where that and the ba-da-ba-ba-ba. He's pulling from <laughs> every the same time well. I see him, yeah. Those are the two things that I'm thinking or about. Or I like in Super Troopers when he's like, drunk enough to kick your ass. <laughs> oh, he's given us so much and we've asked so little of him. Those are the best actors are the ones who are just like, I like to work. I don't care what it is. I like to work. Yeah, and I like his sort of bafflement at Jeremy Strong's insistence on method acting. Oh, thank you for bringing this up. I almost <laughs> forgot. It, it, it appears to me, at least, that they have they had a contentious relationship because uh, he does not understand or respect method acting. And Jeremy Strong apparently plays Kendall from the minute they start filming until the end when they wrap. Uh, he's just Kendall in real life. And obviously, that would be a very difficult person to be around for 18 hours on set. The day after the episode aired where his character died, he appeared on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He looks relaxed. He looks refreshed. He looks jovial. He's wearing a red velvet bomber jacket and matching booties. Like, this man is so happy to not have to deal with Jeremy Strong's method acting bullshit. And to see him, like, he's just glowing. Like, it was it was truly a thing where I was like, as a fellow Brian, I'm thrilled for you. I just looked up his IMDb. Our guy has 240 acting <laughs> credits. It's also him in X-Men. Oh, yeah. Like the shitty senator or something? The man loves a paycheck. Yeah. We love that for him. I would like to see him just keep this relationship with HBO going and just show up in like every HBO Sunday like night prestige. drama. Mm-hmm. I want to see him on White Lotus next season. That He'd be great in that. I want to see him around the table drinking Cosmos <laughs> with Charlotte, Miranda, and Carrie and just Can like that. someone their age, please? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. He's one of the girls. He's he's playing Samantha. <laughs> 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 I want to hear that big booming voice talking about like whatever sexcapade he was up to. I would love that too. Also, for those of you who want it, there's a great video of him lip syncing and dancing to Carly Rae Jepsen's mega smash Call Me Maybe at the premiere party, which is not to be missed. Wow. Brian Cox, I'm calling you definitely. Christine is researching the role he played I'm on sorry. the um, So I'm uh, going to sign off for Christine. Okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, I signed on as Christine. I'm signing off as Christine. Yeah. Okay, guys. Until next, next time. time. Bye. Goodbye. No, that was more goofy. <laughs> <Done>. <laughs> there we go. <laughs>